Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debanking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, tackling climate change with economics. Last month, we discovered that the rate of ice loss in Antarctica has tripled since 2012. Raising global sea levels by three millimeters is an escalation of what had been a steady loss of ice, which wasn't good. But the fact that things are speeding up means the situation is getting far worse. And it's all down to that thing called global warming. Now, you can deny that it's not man-made, if you feel so compelled, but it's increasingly difficult to claim it's not happening. You'd have to be an idiot or Donald Trump to believe that. So is there an economic solution to the world's biggest problem? And I'm talking global warming there, not Donald Trump. Uh, we'll look at that today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Now, the sad thing is that report about ice loss, which came from uh, research by NASA last month and the European Space Agency, got very little attention in the mainstream press. Perhaps we're tired of it which obviously doesn't bode well for the planet. And of course, we have a president in the White House who believes that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese for some unexplained ulterior motive. So how do we tackle the issue of economics, ignoring the impact of capitalism on the environment? And Steve, can we use our capitalist systems to help fix it or at least reduce the impact of it? Well, this is, this is again one of the areas where a hole and, and then the way economists think about how the economy operates has led to this particular lack of attention to what's I think to become an absolutely crucial issue in the next 10 to 15, 20 years, and that's that they don't see the role of energy at all in production. Mm. And if you understand the role of energy, then if you're going to use energy, you necessarily generate waste energy at the same time. Um, and that's the, it's called the second law of thermodynamics, that any, uh, any, any attempt... Uh, the, uh, over time, order in the universe decays. So to have increasing order, which is what production involves, you must have increasing more than an increasing disorder to match that, to offset it, and that fundamentally is the heat waste that we generate even without taking into account uh, the, the role of carbon, methane and water vapour in trapping ultraviolet radi- radiation and stopping it from leaving the planet, which is where global warming comes in. So um, we're starting quite behind the eight ball because it's almost as if we're trying to explain uh, meteors while still thinking the Earth is the centre of the universe. And it's very hard to explain it because the heavens should be perfect in that theory and the meteors therefore can't come from the heavens. So you're caught in this intellectual black hole. That's a bad expression to use. Uh, given I'm talking about Ptolemaic astronomy, but you're unable to even consider the problem. But is, this is I mean, what I find so frustrating. Right, but I mean, I'm trying to simplify all of that. I mean, are we yeah. really saying, well, okay, you know, what we're looking at is, is something that is so ingrained on the planet, which is a limited resource, uh, and uh, and yet we're trying to we're trying to relate it to, to a closed system that sort of almost ignores the the planet. So, for example, when companies pollute, they very often don't factor in the full cost of of that pollution, which is why people start talking about trying to introduce carbon tax and that sort of thing. Yeah, but the, the, even with that particular front, if you actually included all the costs uh, of producing anything, all profit would be negative because again, because of the second law of thermodynamics, if you 
look at, uh, at, at production, which means increasing order uh, out of, you know, take unordered raw materials turn into ordered products, that has to be offset by an increase in disorder. And if you've made people pay for all the increase in disorder they created, they'd be making negative profits. Mm. So there is, to me, there's no way around this issue. You simply have to say, well, you can't include all the costs um, in of, of uh, production in the price of production because if you do, the costs given the second law of thermodynamics exceed the benefits and therefore you will get, get, get nowhere at all. So it's a question, how do we actually live within that problem um, yeah. of, of the constraints of the laws of thermodynamics while producing a, you know, a, a, a working economy? And the answer is you've got to dispose of the waste somewhere. It's best not to dispose of it where you live. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's what uh, maybe well, you know, there's lots of space in Australia. Maybe that's good, that, could, that could be used for that. But I mean, well, for uh, a long time we were doing that. That's yeah. what we were doing. Yeah. You know? but, um, because all that space, why not? Um, I'm only joking, of course. But I mean, this this idea of yeah, you're going to make a loss, whatever. I mean, that again, you're looking at that simplistically. If uh, if companies are leaving the planet worse off as a result of what they're doing, then that's not. Uh, and I hate using that word equilibrium in your company, but um, you know, in this ideal world. Uh, we'd be producing stuff and making stuff and making a profit without affecting the planet. If we are making the planet worse off, um, then we can't keep on doing that forever. So it stands to reason that you're making a loss because you're destroying the planet. Yeah, uh, but at the same time, the planet is an open system, so the planet is benefiting from you know uh, energy from energy from, a, uh, from the sun coming from outer space, yeah. and that's that's why ecology. Why the ecology has existed so successfully for so long? Because the planet itself had a processing system to handle the waste being generated by other other components. So, for example, the fact that you and I are breathing is courtesy of the waste of cyanobacteria. Because when the planet was first formed, the atmosphere was overwhelmingly carbon dioxide, and life processes as they where they where they began apparently occurred in anaerobic areas like the the, the thermal ocean vents we we now know about that are generate you know, hydrogen sulfide comes out and organisms can process that. Uh, the fact that we had this huge carbon dioxide atmosphere meant no aerobic processes could work, but then cyanobacteria developed, which have effectively, the, uh, you know, it's not chlorophyll, I, mean, I don't know if there's actually chlorophyll in their, in their bacterial cells, but they had a capacity to take in carbon dioxide and use sunshine to take in the energy to let them split that, uh, combine it with water, split it, produce uh, oxygen uh, as a waste product, and that waste product, what you and I now breathe. Yeah. So these feedbacks, the, 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 and then everything in, at a biological level survived within that capacity of the planet to process the waste uh, and using the continuous supply of energy from outside the planet from the sun. We come along with using uh, what we didn't know at the time, which is effectively stored solar energy in coal and oil, and we have been adding that to the planet's own balance system. So if you look at the level of carbon dioxide the planet had prior to industrialization, it was about 280, 280 parts per million. <coughs> That's where the 280 number comes from. So 280 uh, parts per million of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide, and that involved all the byproducts of you know, you and I being oxygen breathing that, that expel carbon dioxide, animals expelling methane as well, uh, that gave you a balance of the overall planet at that 280 mark. We have been adding a tiny amount uh, to that over time, more than the planet itself is capable of reprocessing. So we've now gone from 280 parts per million to 400 parts per million. 
and that's been an exponential increase in the uh, in the ratio over time. At the same time, the level of absorption of solar en- energy by carbon dioxide is a logarithmic thing. So an increase in the amount of carbon dioxide causes a logarithmic increase in the capture. Combine one logarithmic with an exponential, you get a straight line increase in the temperature of the planet. And that's what we're trapped in right now. And that that didn't matter back in the days of Adam Smith. It does matter now. Yeah, it does matter now because, of course, it's now gone from 280 to 400. But is there a way that we can maintain it at that 400 rather than seeing it continue to increase and the situation continues to get worse through some sort of economic measure? The the trouble is that we're talking of staying where we are when we have... You know, even though there's been a dramatic increase in in global wealth courtesy of the rise of China and a billion people coming out of poverty over time, you've still got a couple of billion people who are living far below the level of income we're talking about in on average in the West, let alone in China, let alone in the West, who have a legitimate desire to get a higher standard of living, mm. and that involves exploiting more energy. So we 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 are not going to be stopping at two eight at, at four hundred, and. And this then comes unless, back unless to, the West uh, takes a, a big cut, which uh, which, which is not going to do, which, which is not going to happen. Well, now, and actually, on mm. that, I mean, what we are doing is making it worse for those countries. So, there's an article which was in the uh, Financial Times recently by uh, Kate Allen saying that developing countries who are most vulnerable to climate change are actually paying significantly more to borrow from financial markets because of their exposure to climate change risks. So, places like Ghana, Tanzania, Kenya, Bangladesh, Vietnam. So countries that uh, are creating the problem are not paying the price. Countries that are, are feeling the impact to it all are paying the price. So this is uh, this is how crazy the situation has become. Yeah, and a lot of the migrant pressures we're seeing in the West as well are arguably caused by the impact of global warming on the Middle East and Africa, where people are now becoming effectively climate change refugees. They've been called economic refugees in many ways, but it actually is the climate-induced breakdown of their economies that is causing a lot of the migration. So um, we have a, a real dilemma, and I don't think we're going to solve it. I think we're going to be, we'll bump into the brick wall of realising this stuff is, is, is not, you know, can't be blamed on left-wing uh, uh, physicists trying to maintain themselves and jobs by producing false data, et cetera, et cetera, which is the conspiracy side of, of things. It's just the planet can't cope with the amount of energy we're pumping into it um, in terms of it can't, it can't process it and maintain the same temperature. Um, so the only solution is to reduce the amount we pump into the, into the uh, biosphere, which we're not going to do So that, in terms of voluntary. So the question is, when did the planet tell us it's, um, we've gone too far down that track? And um, Well, Elon know, Musk is... Uh, off to Mars, so he obviously he obviously knows where it's going. But look, there was there was one stage, wasn't there, when companies that didn't practice sustainability were seen as being a risky investment. I mean, not that long ago, maybe five or ten years ago. <coughs> Uh, you know, the, there was a fear that they were going to get hit with legislation. So it was seen as being a, a risk investing in those companies. And yet that seems to have all disappeared now. It's OK to it's invest it. in coal, for example, because it's still relatively cheap to extract so long as you don't have to clean up after yourself and so long as you don't worry about the uh, the rising uh, level of carbon in the atmosphere. So we're back to investing in those companies. Uh, there is still the, you know, the idea of ethical investing and, and being worried about stranded assets. And this is a major issue for the actuarial profession now because they know that a lot of the calculations, the profitability of the companies that they are supposed to manage is based on the, the belief that the future assets they have can be realised. But if you find that you simply 
get to the point where people say, okay, that's the, that's we cannot allow any more carbon to go into the atmosphere. Uh, ban carbon mining or, or or ban the production of new coal mines, uh, coal-fired power stations, and start decommissioning them. Then there are lots of assets that people have, particularly coal assets, which can't be realised. And this is the real dilemma we face because we know of have issues about running out of oil. Uh, the, the 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 there are arguments that we reached the peak level of oil extraction uh, anywhere between 2010 and 2020. Uh, but coal, there's enough coal on the planet at current rates of usage to keep on going for another 250 years. But if we did that, the amount of coal and the, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would well and truly crack a thousand parts per million. And that's when it starts to get um, very scary if you look at, at some of the science, scientific predictions of what that would mean in terms of climate levels. Temperatures are like you know, six degrees higher than they are right now. And uh, they're already... You know, good signs that the livability of parts of the Middle East is heading towards zero because the human body can't cope with an average temperature, I think, above 34 or 35 degrees. So what's wrong then with the idea? I mean, I can't accept your, your, your prophecy that, you know, we're not going to be able to sort this out, so we just have to wait till the planet tells us it's, uh, it's, it's jack of us and things are just going to get bad from here on in. What's wrong with, you know, the ideas of saying, well, okay, we need to contain that level, you know, let's introduce carbon tax where polluters pay for their carbon emissions or, or carbon trading scheme where, you know, the total amount of emissions is capped. Why can't either of those two approaches work? Well, one of the dangers is that you put up the price of energy for everybody when you do that. And the people who can least afford the increase in, in, in that energy cost are the poor. And the, the wealthy can handle a higher price for energy. The poor can't. So you get caught in a political uh, bind then. That uh, you know That's, that's where um, a lot of people who vote for Trump and vote for Malcolm Turnbull, for that matter, or for uh, Theresa May, any of the more conservative, and, and, and including uh, the, the right in, in Italy as well, they vote for it. They don't want to see their energy prices rise. Now, there you get caught and your price mechanism becomes an income distribution mechanism and the ones that hit most heavily are the, the poorest. Right. And they're the ones who are really suffering could, out of you the... Could, I mean, if, if there was recognition around the world that this is becoming a significant problem, you could fix that issue, of course, with more redistributive taxes. I mean, it doesn't have to be that it's just going to hit the, uh, hit the poor more than it hits the wealthy. And then you get the Venezuela argument. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, for sure. If you start to redistribute too much, people will stop spending... Uh, then they will, will, will go on investment strike and the economy will collapse. So it's, it's I, I, we, partly my pessimism comes out of the fact that we've never managed to resolve these problems before they've manifested themselves in the past when you're looking on a small scale. Mm. And given that we haven't done it on the small, I can't see us doing it on the large either. Well, I mean, part of the problem as well is because our focus uh, is short term. I mean, right down from, mm-hmm. you know, governments is a very short term focus. Obviously, CEOs of companies just care about their share price in the here and now and what their bonus is going to be. I mean, the, the economy is built largely around the here and now. Uh, you know, at best, perhaps a little bit uh, looking at the very soon. Uh, but that's as far as it goes uh, with no regard for what's happening in a decade. I mean, is, is there a way... Of, of changing the model so we change that perspective? Well, that was part of what the limits to growth tried to do themselves. And the major part of their argument about why we do get dilemmas out of this is that our reaction to uh, to events that we cause now can be substantially delayed. And the longer the delays are, the more uh, you're going to get overshoot and then break down afterwards rather than a smooth approach to a new you know, equilibrium. And... Um, 
That, that's I've actually seen a couple of blog posts on that in the last couple of days. But if you have a, um, a if you imagine saying from a load like you know, 280 parts per million tapering up to 400, then you're going to this nice smooth curve which has got an S shape to it. But that would happen if we reacted very rapidly to the damage we're causing at the same time. If we have a delayed response, then what happens is you go well past that point and then you collapse on the other side. And that's what I think we'll do. And in terms of the um, potential for that, with the level of um, economic activity we have right now, we know we're using something like one and a half times the sustainable capacity of the planet to regenerate itself every year right now. So once we realise we've gone that far, we've already overshot that far, we realise we're not on a, a smooth trajectory towards some new maximal level. We're well past that. We have to go backwards. You're talking, in, in terms of people's living standards, something like a 70 or 80% fall in average living standards. Now, that's the only sort of thing, you, the only way you can get away with imposing that is by massive redistribution combined with, with being on a, on a war footing and rationing. And, um, but if everyone's got a, if everyone's got a seventy or eighty percent fall in their living standard, does it really matter too much? I mean, it, it's it, 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 <laughs> it, it does if you're poor. <laughs> well, okay. well, you, yeah, you're, you're you know you're even more poor than you were before. But I mean, it's but it's it's a relative concept, isn't it? I mean, if everyone takes a cut in their living standard, I mean, we were you know it depends on the definition. I and mean, we, we've had this conversation before, I'm sure. You know, I mean, in the mm-hmm. in the in, in the 70s, you know, we were we were watching black and white TV. We were. We, we probably had less food. We ate, certainly ate out less. Um, but, um, you know, life wasn't so grim, was it? It's just that we've uh, grown to expect a, a higher living standard. This, I mean, we, an unsustainable living standard, clearly, because the economy can't, uh, can't sustain, the planet can't sustain well, the living be, standard we've got. So, the, so, yeah, so, so yeah. to fix the problem, you've got to take a cut in living standards somehow. Yeah, but uh, you only do that in, when you're under an existential threat. And it's recognised as such, and in some way the burden is shared. So the Second World War was like that. Rationing was widespread. You know, you, you got a ration of so many ounces of tobacco per month, a ration of so many, so much milk and so on. People started eat, eating chicory rather than coffee because there was a coffee ration and so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah, I wouldn't and you accepted that because that was, that was a survival mechanism for your particular culture. Yeah. Um, we have yet to experience that on a global scale. Yeah, I'm not and sure. I think now you put now you mentioned that I wouldn't be able to drink coffee. Uh, actually, I'm not. Prepared. There you go. Not Chicory. prepared for that. Absolutely. So, <laughs> but look, we. But we, I mean, we are. You know, maybe we are reaching the point. So, uh, I spoke to uh, a scientist the other day talking about how the uh, Antarctic ice shelf has actually started to increase the rate of melting, and it's happening there because more of the Antarctic ice shelf obviously is underwater. So, uh, and mm. uh, and over over the last year or the last few years, they've seen the rate increasing faster than they were expecting it to. So the situation is actually worse than they thought it was, and they expect that sea levels are going to rise faster as a result. So that then mm. becomes very uh, demonstrable when people who've got really nice houses on waterfront suddenly find that their living room is underwater. Perhaps then they'll start to think, well, maybe now is the time to act. And as we start to see more massive storms as well happening, because the water level and the water temperature is uh, is so much higher, then we might say, okay, there's something behind all of this. It, and you know, you can almost argue with the climate change deniers who who are saying, well, it's not man-made. You, you get to the point there where you say, well, who cares whether it's man-made or not? We need to do we need to do something about it. And we're not just going to spend that money building uh, massive dams to keep the, keep the water out because it's just going to keep if it's going to keep on rising. 
so if we reach that point where we you know we we start to say well yes we do need to take a cut in living standards something has to be done what would you do what's the way forward i think that's where rationing is the only likely way of succeeding Mm. in terms of consumption levels and what i mean by rationing is rationing energy consumption because we'd find that what we're really doing to cause the level of pollution is using more energy and dumping therefore more waste energy and more carbon dioxide as well uh, into the biosphere and for a while we have to drastically curtail that uh, while we bring about energy systems which are non-carbon generating to the scale where there is capable of supporting civilization uh, as coal-based power is right now and that could take a 20 or so year period to be successful and we may be looking at uh, geoengineering in the meantime and there are plenty of people who are you know i know a lot of uh, Ecologists are anti this concept, but there are certainly engineering groups looking at how can we cause changes to the amount of radiation hitting us from the sun to let us balance the other side of the equation. So rather than saying we're trapping too much of the heat, let's reduce the heat we are actually trapping in the first instance by sulfur dioxide particles in the atmosphere, reflectors in outer space, etc., etc. All these things are being uh, certainly being put forward as hypothetical ideas to cope with it when the crunch day comes. But we certainly aren't prepared for it in advance. So how, think, how disastrous yeah. would that be if you were to say, say, for example, you said uh, whatever you set the level at, but for the countries that, that, are, that are the highest energy consumers per capita, which would be you know, Australia, um, the United States, the Saudis, places like that, if you said to them, well, you've got, mm-hmm. to, you've got to consume per capita, you've got to assume, uh, consume half that level, so that we, we um, so that we solve this problem, uh, other countries, uh, you know, the, the comparative distance difference with other countries would obviously be would be less great. But these are rich countries we're talking about. They would find a way, wouldn't they? I mean, it would just create more innovation more quickly. And so, would it be that disastrous to those economies? Mm, well, I, if you if, if you might not you do it in one year, you might you might phase it yeah. in over a decade, <laughs> perhaps. Well, I think it'd be phased in fairly rapidly once it becomes conscious. We become conscious of how far we've gone down that track. But again, you're talking about a level of global cooperation we've never succeeded in having before, mm. and you're, you're talking about people accepting a cut in living standards without a direct existential threat to them at the time, unless they happen to be living in a coastal city and can, and can see it. And uh, it is, you know, to, to bring in energy rationing, that's what I think we're going to be facing, plus directing all of our innovation at finding new ways to mine energy without generating carbon waste on the other side. Uh, you know, I, I just see a lot of chaos coming out of that. I don't see it being done in anything like a smooth fashion, particularly when you throw in the impact of migration, of people migrating from areas which are being climate damaged to those which appear safer, as in from the Middle East to Europe and so on. And so on. Rise of the right wing, a, a bunker mentality, not in our backyard, etc., etc. Mm. Um yeah, it's, it, I don't, it, it, it's, it, I can't see a way of pointing that into a pretty picture. Well, maybe maybe we need more of that rise of the right wing. Maybe we want need one of those right wing people to just take over the world, um, and then it becomes his problem to to, to sort <laughs> to sort out. Maybe that's the only way forward. Maybe Donald Trump needs to be the president. Oh my God. Of the world. Then he might have a different perspective on it. I think what we're going to see is actually the countries which have a which have a totalitarian aspect of their culture, such as China, being more able to do that than we are in the West. Uh, because, again, 
uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's capitalist notion and how it functions, but it's a communist notion and how it's controlled. And if they realise the riches that we have to really drastically reduce the, the energy background, and that means redistribution on a grand scale, uh, you don't complain. But the, you know, you, the authoritarian way of enforcing that directive uh, can be quite brutal, and you know whether you like it or not, you've got to wear it. Whereas well, in the West, yeah, the, you know, pass it on to somebody else. Um, I think we'll have a much harder time coping with our political system than the Chinese will. So, I mean, all of this, of course, you know, we, we keep on getting back to capitalism as being the root cause of all of these problems. So can you have capitalism and actually have the controls in place that are going to help us to avoid uh, d- destroying the planet? I mean, is there, is there something that you can do that is still capitalism that would achieve that? I think you can still have a, a system of private profit and a system of uh, price your price system doing most of your allocation. Um, but you have to say then, what are the limits that we can allow you to generate as energy use out of this or waste energy out of what you're doing? And those limits can still make it possible to have a profitable business, but uh, discourage dramatically uh, the level of waste you generate. Yeah. But I don't see a carbon tax as being a solution overall right. because, again, yeah. uh, but then, but then gets back yes. to what I was saying. Then, if you if you were to impose that limit on the amount of energy, which was your suggestion, um, then you know a way would be found, and it would be private enterprise that would find it because everyone's going to say, "Well, okay, here's here's you know it's it's those people who are very good at making money out of fixing problems that make things work more efficiently, rather than the other way of making money, which is uh, just getting us to consume more." Yeah, but the trouble is, again, the scale of the conversion we need is so so big that I don't think we can rely upon that as a market-driven process, just like in the Second World War, we didn't decide to have a market capitalism attack on the Nazis. It was a, uh, a nationally coordinated program, and massive innovation came out of that, uh, but in a military setting rather than a, a capitalist one. And that's, I think, we can ultimately get to a form of capitalism uh, post the crisis, which will be sustainable in the long run. And where you get a you, know, you get a, a decent income if you're a worker or a non non owner of capital, but to make really big profits, and you need to innovate and get uh, capital profits that way. I can think that's a feasible future, but the transition I think is going to be militaristic. So almost like a national service. Let's get everyone to work for an energy company. In uh, you know, the, we'll we'll conscript them uh, to try and find a solution to all of this. It's it's uh, maybe except it's not it's not it's not finding more energy because you know, there's no way any of us can be. Uh, you know, hard to go and hold solar cells somewhere. It's 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 really a case of having. That's why I think rationing on the individual scale is more likely than saying go out and produce more energy on the individual scale. It isn't possible to do the production of energy on the scale we need with the labour. We have to actually just consume less and uh, to force the level of consumption down and to make that feasible. I think it's going to be rationing that does it rather than a market system. Right, but it was phased in over time. Say so it was over 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 a decade, and it started. Uh, by the end of August, for example, so I don't know. Suppose, suppose all of a sudden, uh, as a result of this podcast, every every world leader says we've got to do something about this. Um, I mean, if it was phased in over over a period of time, I mean, couldn't innovation compensate for the um, for for that limit on energy without any discernible loss, even in living standards? Because we would just I find better ways we, of doing Finding better ways of doing this, thing, implementing the other story. If you actually come up with a, a new form of you know, exploiting energy, which happens to be far less polluting uh, than coal or oil, then you've still got to turn that into technology. 
And that that time, you know, I think I think even though with the growth we've seen in in renewable energy in the last. 10 years, which has been quite dramatic. We're still talking about renewables in terms of solar cells and, and uh, wind making up, I think, less than 4% of total energy production on the planet. To go from 4% to 100%, you know, is, is an enormous increase in the scale of operation, 25 times. And uh, that that cannot be done slowly, even right. if the ideas come up rapidly. You, you can't do with that. You can't make that transition quickly, even if you come up with the ideas quickly. Yeah, but... Um but some, but there would be some big hitters. I mean, in Australia, for example, everyone could turn their air conditioning off. Uh, I imagine that would make a, a, a reasonable dent. Uh, you could, we could stop eating cows, so we don't need their methane anymore. I mean, there's, you know, probably a list of fifty things that could make quite a big impact. And, and okay, people would say, well, I don't want to do that because I get freedom of choice. But if there was a, a, a change in attitude a, a, you know, through education, then maybe you know a whole new generation of kids start to realise that it's their planet that they're inheriting. Maybe some of this would change, or am I just being idealistic? I think you're being idealistic, but I think again, imagine turning off the air conditioning in Sydney in summer. Um, you know, it, or saying you can't turn the air conditioning on. Or there's that that scale of rationing means a you you certainly know you're making a sacrifice when you know. You know, I can. We now go back to. I lived in a house in. I lived in a house in Sydney without air conditioning. It was an old house that was built uh, to stay cool in the heat of summer. You know, it's big, a mm. big, thick house with lots of windows that were in the right place, so breeze went through the house. I we got by without air conditioning, and yeah. uh, you know, on those days where it was forty six degrees, as it was sometimes because we were living, you know, it wasn't on the coast. We coped, and it you know it wasn't that bad, and we had you know yeah. ceiling fans and that sort of thing. You had the architecture to cope, and actually, there's been yeah. an architecture conference next year on the very issue of how do you design for a, a sustainable planet. And part of that is if you have to redesign the architecture, so we go to that level of where passive buildings can mean you don't have to air conditioning, so you don't use energy to keep yourself cool, and so on. That in itself is a huge rebuilding exercise. And in the meantime, we're not rebuilding. You've got to live somewhere. You're going to live in places which need air conditioning to be survivable. Right. And you're told you can't turn the air conditioning on. So, But that rebuilding um, exercise is good for the economy. <laughs> um, it gives you activity, but it doesn't give you a net increase in the amount of energy you're actually enjoying. Uh, so there's, there's, you know, it's, it's, but, it, like but it reduces the amount of energy at the end of it. So it's a, it, does, it, it creates yeah, employment in the short term and it reduces energy consumption at the end. And that's the, that's the is, sort of stuff. That's, that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying, you know, could there be a transition in the economy where you could actually come to this, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you knew there was a target that you had to meet, then obviously, uh, lots of developers, for example, would say, yes, okay, well, well let's build houses that don't need air conditioning. Um, mm. because, because it, it's going to be so expensive to, to turn your air conditioning on, uh, because of that, that cap that's been placed. Yeah, I think capitalism is going to produce that more than a socialist system was because there's more capacity for innovation in a capitalist system without, without an argument. But the transition, I think, is going to be more like the Second World War than the 1950s. Yeah, with food vouchers. <laughs> good to talk, Steve. Uh, I wish there was a clearer answer to all of this, but uh, catastrophe uh, seems to be imminent, and then we might buck our ideas up. That seems to be what you're saying. Unfortunately, I think that's what we, we, we've never managed to evade a crash. We've always occurred in the aftermath to a crash. This is our first uh, attempt at a global one, and uh, you know, humanity will need to do some pretty surprising things to come out of it. I think we will, but I don't think we're going to come over before it happens. In the meantime, don't buy a house near the sea. Uh, mm. We'll catch you again soon. Thanks, Steve. Okay.
So, has that depressed you? Well, next time, uh, we're going to take a deep dive on inflation. What causes it, and is it a good thing or a bad thing? And when will we see it again? All of that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.